welcome to the Emory Digest podcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Chuma. I have my co-host, uh, Jason, or Dr. Brown, if you will. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, and, and so uh, we, uh, you know, we're actually bringing to you guys our first international guest, which we are super excited about. And we're going to be talking about bariatric surgery, nutrition complications, um, really cool review. Um, actually, Jason, I, I don't know. We talk about a lot of reviews. Uh, what did you like about this one in particular? Uh, yeah, I just thought it was really well conceived. This is a dense and challenging and, and can be some somewhat of an intimidating topic. It's not something that um, we see a lot, but it's something that's incredibly important when it does come up. And so it does a nice job of giving you a framework, a roadmap, really, with some in particular well thought out figures and tables um, for how to manage these patients, what to recognize, what the alarm symptoms are and how frequently to check for various nutritional deficiencies, what to check for, and how to replete them in a, in a sort of all-in-one and comprehensive way that, frankly, I hadn't seen before and will really come to utilize in my practice. Nice, nice. Well, uh, our guest is all the way in France, so I think it's time to get to the show. Let's do it. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Emeroid Digest podcast. So today we will be discussing uh, a, a really awesome paper. Uh, it's entitled Prevention and Treatment of Nutritional Complications After Bariatric Sur Surgery. Uh, and to do that, uh, we will be spending some time with uh, Dr. Alex Nudzo. Um, he... Actually, I'm going to kick it to, to Jason to, to sort of get us started with just sort of figuring out more about um, Dr. Nutzo. Yeah, Alex, um, you're our first international guest. I'm afraid we don't have too much of a context for, um, for training overseas. I was wondering if you could walk me and Chuma and our listeners through your journey in medicine um, from the education perspective and, and how you got to GI. Yes, hello, hello, Jason and Chuma. So uh, thank you for this introduction and for inviting me to discuss uh, this uh, medicine in France and this paper. Uh, so I'm, I'm 35. I'm a gastroenterologist and attending a gastroenterologist at Beaujon Hospital. Beaujon Hospital is, a, is a, um, an hospital specialized in gastroenterology. Basically, on, ten, on over 10 floors, we have five floors of gastroenterology and digestive surgery. And that's a reference hospital in, in France in gastroenterology. And uh, um, um, I work in a department specialized on uh, intestinal failure and uh, acute mesenteric ischemia. And um, basically in France, uh, the, um, my, my, my trainship uh, in France was uh, to, to, to be a gastroenterologist. It's basically six years of common medical studies. Uh, at the end of the six years, you have a, uh, you need to pass an exam to access to residency, and then you, you specialize during the residency. Uh, you've got three years to uh, resident to be a general practitioner and for gastroenterology to be uh, graduate did, uh, in gastroenterology, it's five years, five years of um, residency. So at the end, six plus five, uh, 11 years, 
you get your MD degree in gastroenterology and you can be attending a physician on, in gastroenterology. That's great. How, how did you pick GI as a specialty? How did you know early on that that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, uh, I think as a lot of medical students, it was uh, an internship. I know because uh, I know this in France, most of uh, um, young gastroenterologists choose gastroenterology based on uh, an internship uh, where they discovered yeah. gastroenterology and, and had the interest in this uh, specialty. So it was uh, during an internship. And there were, there were several, several reasons for that. Uh, that was a very uh, um, important choice. Uh, it was that uh, I liked the diversity of um, gastroenterology. I didn't want to sub-specialize in a very small uh, niche. And uh, I thought gastroenterology was good uh, for that. Also, the second reason was uh, that it's a medical and interventional mm. specialty and you, ha you have the, the endoscopy which is interesting uh, and which uh, um, which is interesting during your week it, it makes uh, the, the exercise of the, the specialty very varying and uh, interesting I think and the third one which is important uh, in France it was uh, that it's uh, a specialty rather uh, well paid in France because you have a, a, a great variety of, uh, of um, incomes of yeah. um, salary uh, from from general practitioner and, and even among specialties and uh, and there are sometimes difference of uh, three four and almost ten times a difference uh, in salaries in between wow. some specialties. Uh, so gastroenterology was among, uh, uh, in the middle, but middle high. Um, yeah. So that was an important uh, consideration as well. That's great. Well, we appreciate your perspective on that. So when you think about your um, progression through medical training and now um, being on faculty at the hospital where you are, you know, one of the things we try to get at is is the role of mentorship how that helped people um, who fostered an interest in gi um, potentiated your ability to get into gi and interact with gi in a meaningful way and start doing uh, research and writing academically um, what was that mentorship like for you was there a group of people was there one particular person how did you link up with that person um, and the reason we ask is because a lot of our listeners are medical students here, um, uh, some are in residency, um, some are, are young in GI, they're fellows, they're training, and some are junior faculty, and all of them are, are looking for their way mm -hmm. and how they um, link up with people who can, who can help turbocharge their career, who can help um, them become the next generation of, of the person they're linking up with. So what did that look like for you? Uh, in France, for me, uh, when I was a, um, a resident, there was not an organized mentorship. So it was um, during your internships um, that you, you had a, an attending physician, you followed an, an attending physician, sometimes a, um, a professor or associate professor. And um, 
that that was them that gave me the interest in a particular um, uh, subject topic of gastroenterology and that uh, helped me with the uh, uh, steps in research and all this but um the the um, the um, how can i say the um, my uh, what I wanted, my my goal, and uh, the fact that I wanted to do research was something uh, um, from me, uh, and I saw people. I, I would say, I would say that the, the patients gave me the the in, gave me the the interest uh, to uh, sub specialize in a specific thing, and then the team. But first, mm -hmm. the interest in a, a specific. Um, topic in gastroenterology that motivated me to uh, subspecialize in, in it. So first the patients and then uh, the patients and the interest in the subspecialty and then a team uh, where it was uh, um, where it was uh, good and it felt good to, to work with and, and uh, so that, that was it. I know that for younger um, uh, residents now, there, there is a system of uh, an organization of a mentorship, but it's starting in France. Mm. It was it was not an historical thing. Yeah, I, I think it increasingly we're all recognizing the the importance of that, and you know that can cut both ways. Uh, creating um, official organizations for it or or assignments mm. even. Um, can can hamper the process sometimes but i think it's nice to start looking at how mentorship forms and creating sort of a fertile ground for that interaction to happen mm -hmm. and certainly a conversation we're having on on this side of the atlantic as well how do we potentiate those relationships um this article that we're highlighting today is in the lancet um how did that process come to be were you part of a committee was the article solicited or or did your group write it and 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 find a home for it how, how did that all go actually it was uh, it was uh, it was solicited and it will it was solicited from my um, the head of uh, the department um, actually initially this topic nutritional complications of bioetic surgery was a topic a review um, solicited by uh, the united european um, Gastroenterology Society for the Congress, the European Congress for a lecture, and uh, um, it happened that the the editor in chief of the, the Lancet Gastroenterology was in the audience of this uh, communication of this conference, and so at the end he came to us uh, say oh, it would be a great topic for uh, a review in the Lancet Gastroenterology, and so that's how it was solicited. That's right. Then it was only the starting point of a long, long process <laughs> of uh, writing and uh, revision, revisioning, revisioning over and over. It was like a five, five rounds of revision. It's quite, wow. it's quite, it's quite a, it's quite a thing. It's quite a journal, and you see, uh, and you see how um, how strong and how rigorous is the process in these journals where they actually do a, a, a real editorial work more than other um, more common uh, journal we can uh, submit articles to yeah well alex i have to say it's a it's an incredible 
article, it's, it's a gift to the international community. I mean, when I see these patients, it's, um, it can be a little daunting, um, especially if you don't see them a lot. And so having this, this roadmap, this framework, um, you know, the amount of time that it went, um, for you and your colleagues to do this, you know, not that we're anybody to, to thank you on behalf of everybody that's reading it, but as a, as somebody that uses this and sees these patients, these articles are, are a godsend. So we appreciate the time and effort. Um, and, and hopefully those of, of our listeners that are looking to get into academics again, listen to this podcast, listen to your interview and your story and, and, and inspire them to go dedicate, you know, their professional career in the same way that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of what a good paper it is, Chuma, I thought maybe now might be the time to switch gears and, and kind of get into the paper itself. What do you think? We, I, I am all for it. <clears throat> okay. So, um, I think that, that was a great intro. I think we have like a better understanding. So it seems like just to be clear, you, you seems like you see a lot of these patients in your, I guess, in your own clinical practice. So, um, not that much because, uh, I see only severe malnutrition. Uh, mm. after bariatric surgery. We, I, I work in a, an intestinal failure center, so I, we see these patients through intestinal failure. We, we, we are not part of um, the specialized team that assess patients for indications for bariatric surgery and that follow them. But um, what was interesting for me to write this review um, although I was, I, I could be only an expert on the intestinal failure part, was that uh, we see even in France where obesity is less uh, prevalent than in other countries, for, um, but we see more and more uh, obese patients and uh, post-bariatric patients in the gastroenterology, in the common gastroenterology uh, practice. And so we see them for uh for um, simple simple symptoms sometimes which can be actually red flags for more important uh, complications and and so i think um in get in the gastroenterology curriculum it's we 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 are not taught very we we don't have a class uh, a course on these uh, specific patients and potential complications and um and so I think it's good to have uh, clear ideas for the gastroenterology and the, and the general gastroenterologists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we can just jump in, you know, to, to a case. Hopefully it'll help us sort of flesh out this paper and uh, some of these specifics. Um, so the case I have is a case of Miss Barry. So she's a 43-year-old female. Uh, she has a history of poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. It's complicated by peripheral neuropathy. She's also got hypertension, hyperlipidemia, iron deficiency anemia, and uh, actually a prior C-section. Um, so I guess this may be a little atypical, but uh, she presents to your clinic, and um, you know she's a uh, you know she she really has just an inability to lose weight. Um, has tried a lot of different weight loss strategies, diet, exercise, um, but they haven't worked. And she wanted to discuss, um, you know, bariatric surgery options. Um, and her BMI is 39. Uh, I guess I'll start with, in her case, you know, uh, one, I guess, how do you counsel this patient about options? And, you know, does she have a, a real true indication for bariatric surgery? 
Yeah, yes, I, I think she has. Um, as I told you, I would refer her to the, the, the surgeon uh, to, <laughs> to, to validate this indication. But based on the current uh, guidelines, um, she has a BMI over 35 and she has a, a strong associated comorbidities. Uh, I don't mm. know if the um, type 2 diabetes uh, is, uh, is treated with insulin, but uh, for type 2 diabetes uncontrolled with insulin or poorly controlled, it's even the, the threshold is even lower, it's 30. So, um, oh. so the th with a threshold of 30 plus uh, type 2 diabetes uncontrolled uh, with insulin, um, or 35 with comorbidities that are the actual recommendations. Yeah. So she yeah. has indications. Usually in France, it's uh, uh, the indications comes uh, after a first line of uh, uh, diet, tra trying to weight, uh, lose weight with diet uh, control. And the first line is a medical one. And then yeah. in case of failure and associated comorbidities, uh, sh sh this patient uh, could be indicated for bariatric surgery. Yeah, and then um, I guess in I guess maybe you don't you know do a lot of explaining to some patients on the on the front end. Do you have like I guess a framework that you explain to patients like the different options generally for them bariatric surgery wise? Like how, how do you how would you explain it to them? Um, I think um, in my practice, I, I, I don't do it. And I think for the general gastroenterologist, uh, I think mm -hmm. we should keep in mind that it is um, a matter of uh, a specialized team. So I, I think in, uh, when we see these patients, we should refer them to a, a multidisciplinary team specialized on it, where they will present based on their multidisciplinary evaluation assessment. They mm. will uh, give the pros and cons of uh, uh, certain procedure or over others. And so I think the choice uh, depends on the uh, what the patients have um, uh, have done before, what, what, the motivation, the, the, the diet she has, and the, mm -hmm. the, the goals in terms of uh, control of weight and uh, associated comorbidities. Yeah, yeah. And now, the discussion guess... depends. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was going to say that um, I don't know if there's anything. I'm curious, like, um, I guess, I know you don't see them, I guess, a lot on the front end. Are there, for, like, patients who maybe come in who already have, like, you know, iron deficiency anemia or, like, you know, peripheral neuropathy, um, are there particular, I don't know, do you guys ever get discussed about like um, particular nutrient uh, deficiencies up front or like do, do you ever, are they ever asking you like, you know, how do we sort of prevent the depletion of, of you know, particular um, nutrients in these patients or how does, how does that ever work? Yes. Um... Usually, obese patients, uh, uh, whether they have uh, done bariatric surgery or not, uh, the obesity is a risk factor for, uh, um, for deficiencies, especially for vitamin D and iron. 
uh, and sometimes more in, in case of SIBO. We're, we're going to talk about this later. And uh, because they have, uh, they have often poor diet, sometimes eating disorders, food supplements. And uh, so before bariatric surgery, you need to assess this. And um, even without bariatric surgery, you uh, gastroenterologists should keep in mind that obese patients are prone to uh, nutritional um, deficiencies before bariatric surgery. So I think if you have uncontrolled um, associate comorbidities or um, deficiencies, you should correct it, search for it and correct it before performing bariatric surgery because it can uh, affect the outcome of the surgery as well. I thought that was a, a great point. You don't oftentimes think of obese patients as, as coming to the table already nutritionally deficient. Mm -hmm. um, we were highlighting a couple of them because of the case, but is there sort of a standard panel you might check for these patients or would it be more guided by history? For instance, if they have symptoms of SIBO or they have symptoms of a poor diet or some type of eating disorder, you would check targeted? Or is it symptom triggered with the alarm symptoms that are mentioned in the paper? Or is it more, no, this is our standard thing. When somebody comes in with a BMI greater than 40, we suspect this, this, and this. Uh, are you asking me for post-bariatric patients or obese in general? Uh, obese patients. Obese patients. In obese patients, you don't have, uh, you don't, you have often vitamin D and iron deficiency. You don't have reasons for other um, particular deficiencies, if, if, except if you have uh, SIBO. Uh, but in this case, you will, will, if you will have, you can get uh, um, diarrhea. You have symptoms for it, and you have signs of the basic deficiencies, uh, uh, such as iron and uh, and vitamin D. So if, if you have strong deficiency in iron, which is re refractory to uh, treatment. Maybe you can uh, look for others, but usually mm -hmm. it's only vitamin D and, and, and iron. Very good. So I think I'll, maybe I'll just keep the case going. So we, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll get to these questions about SIBO. So, uh, so basically, Ms. Barry returns to your clinic about six months uh, after her bariatric surgery. Um, she ended up going with the Ruin-Y gastric bypass because she, she wanted maximal weight loss. Um, you know, thus far, she's lost about 30 to 40 pounds, um, but she says that in the interim, she has developed, um, you know, pretty severe, you know, nausea, vomiting, bloating, and diarrhea. Um, I guess in, in her case at this point, you know, what are, I guess, what are your main concerns for a patient like this? Um, and are there like any, you know, special considerations given that she's uh, post-bariatric and Ruin-Y? Mm -hmm. So, um, six months is, is rather early after bariatric surgery and early or you should we first, uh, when you see a patient like a patient and symptoms like that, you should, uh, ask yourself if it could be a surgical complication. So you, you, you can have organic complications, um, such as stenosis ulcers of the anastomosis um, and um, uh, and these symptoms can, can be this so i think the first step is to uh, is to um, uh, check for this 
for example, performing a CT scan or endoscopy uh, or, um, a C gastro or a series, um, X-ray series. Um, and then uh, asking if these symptoms, especially vomiting, nausea, are related to uh, poor compliance to the diet. Sometimes it's only, uh, are these symptoms only related to uh, a large amount of food ingested or, or are these symptoms occurring even uh, following uh, strictly the diet that, that is uh, advised? That, that is important con consideration because it's, it's very often after bariatric surgery that patients during the first month, it's, 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 it's improving over time usually. And uh, the first month they can experience um, nausea, vomit, occasional vomiting, but usually only when they, they don't chew well the, the food or when they eat a large amount of food or uh, after specific food ingestions uh, like bread, rice, things like that. And so usually it improves with, uh, uh, with the diet. But th an important thing is if symptoms are uh, worsening or if symptoms are uh, uh, daily, uh, it's something that can be very uh, a red flag. Daily vomi vomiting is, is not usual and it can be, uh, uh, it can suggest an important complication surgical or even nutritional even after a few days of vomiting in this case you can have very uh, severe thiamine uh, deficiency with uh, important uh, complications and sometimes irreversible so vomiting in a bariatric surgery if it's daily should uh, should um, light on the red light red flag uh, thiamine deficiency and supplementation that's great advice yeah yeah no, that's really helpful um so i guess you know when you i'm curious actually i guess maybe the time frame that you kind of think about these patients so you know it's actually interesting to me that you were saying that you know within six months you would still be kind of concerned for something post-surgical when i don't know i guess do you have like a certain you know is it like a year that you know when you hear about complications you'd be you know sort of less likely to presume it'd be something surgical and, and likely, um, you know, from something more like metabolic or how do you, I guess, do you have like a general time frame that you think about these patients in, um, where you're thinking more surgical versus like, you know, something more, um, metabolic in nature being the problem? Yeah. Usually, um, these patients for the three, six, uh, first months, uh, they are adapting to their new anatomy, a new diet, and sometimes uh, they are still adapting. And so sometimes uh, with um, uh, with uh, wrong uh, wrong food, food ingestion, they can have symptoms, and uh, and and these these uh, symptoms can improve over the first uh, first months. Uh, if things are not improving after six months, it, it, you should look for a complication or you should look for comply with, compliance with PPI, for example. Uh, as well, it's uncommon that uh, patients um, lose weight after the first one or two years. 
So if patients still lose weight uh, after you, you see them after bariatric surgery, after one or two years, it's uncommon, uncommon they uh, continue to lose weight. So it could be a red flag. A patient that uh, lose weight after, after one year, lose important weight uh, after one year or two years, it can be that there's something wrong in the anatomy or something wrong uh, associated that uh, makes them lose more weight than expected. And now, in, I guess in your clinic, are you, um, you know, do they, are they standardly sending these folks to you? Or are you only seeing, it sounds like the patients who you guys are concerned about intestinal failure. And I guess if we're getting there, if maybe if you could kind of explain to the listeners like what what you mean by intestinal failure for these patients and you know which ones are at highest risk for it um, yeah you, usually i see uh in, in my clinic uh i see patients uh with intestinal failure so so i see the most severe uh, nutritional complications um and in for outpatients i see uh, patients with uh a large variety of gastrointestinal symptoms who had uh, a history of bariatric surgery and are not referred uh, especially for nutritional uh, considerations. So we deal with both patients, common gastroenterology symptoms and history of bariatric surgery and some inpatients referred especially uh, for um, uh, nutritional complications. And for example, the, the kind of patients we deal with are um, early complications. Sometimes the surgery uh, goes uh, wrong and you have fistula, you have uh, necrosis of uh, an, a limb, um, acute complications, uh, which, which can lead to very severe malnutrition, loss of parts of the, uh, of the small bowel and a need for parenteral nutrition. Other patients we see sometimes is um, patients who are lost to follow-up. Usually the, uh, the patients uh, are, have a strong link uh, the, first, the first one or two years after bariatric surgery and then patients go well, uh, they move uh, to another city and they, they are lost to follow-up. And uh, then they stop PPI then they stop the, the, the supplementations and you, they see their general gastroenterologist and they come with uh, uh, malnutrition, they come with uh, deficiencies, they come with um, common gastroenterology symptoms and uh, uh, sometimes you don't have a multidisciplinary team around you in the city where you, you work as a gastroenterologist and you should know uh, what to uh, what to look for in these patients, what kind of complications uh, can occur even years after, um, after bariatric surgery. Five years after bariatric surgery, you can develop ulcer if you, uh, if you, if you stop the PPI, for example. Ulcer and then stenosis and then uh, uh, more severe complications. And sometimes we see in, in our clinic patients after three, th three, five years after bariatric surgery, they stop uh, their follow-up, they stop the, the supplementations and they have, uh, and they have uh, severe deficiencies. Uh, I remember a case of a, of a, a woman, five or ten, it was more than five years after the bariatric surgery, 
she stopped the, the PPI. Uh, she developed an ulcer on the anastomosis. She had a lot of vomiting, vomiting, and she developed um, a severe thiamine uh, deficiency with irreversible neurological uh, complications. And so, and so she became delibitated on on this on, on the thing. She has a. a um, Wernicke uh, encephalopathy. I don't know how you say it in English. But no, that's, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and she stopped her job. She was uh, assisted in the daily life for the uh, irreversible uh, neurological complications. And at all steps, uh, there were there was delay in the in the in the care in the in the detection of this uh, the, the post bariatric uh, uh, complications. Now, in, in your mind, are there like, I guess you're mentioning thiamine as like a really important, you know, nutrient that you really kind of like can't miss because of its irreversible um, sort of effects. Are there a couple other nutrient deficiencies that you really, you know, really go for or will kind of like go out of your way in, in visits to sort of target in order to not miss or? The most, I would say the most important to keep in mind is the thiamine one. Because it can be uh, the stocks uh, can be very can drop very quickly uh, mm -hmm. after uh, after a few days of uh, constant vomiting, and um, and uh, in these patients, I, I think the most important one uh, that can cause uh, irreversible damage would be thiamine. Then the other ones are more insidious, can lead to uh, severe complications, but uh, usually not that acute. Um, uh, as uh, as in thiamine one. Listeners who can't, you know, who can't pull up the article right now, I think it would really behoove you guys too, because there's there really are, I mean, a couple really awesome figures in this paper, like figure three that sort of has like, you know, has this picture of a body and it has all these different um, potential symptoms. And below each symptom is like the seven or eight potential micronutrients that could be deficient. Um, so I... I, you know, when we made our like visual abstract for this, um, that I really, really love that figure. And then also, you know, you guys have even a table that goes through how to replete every single vitamin, whether it's like folate, you know, vitamin D, zinc, vitamin A, vitamin K. So for our listeners, you know, we can't, yeah, we can't go through every single vitamin on this podcast, but um, it really is just amazing work that you guys have done here. Um, I wanted to go back for a quick second because, um, you know, because I, I didn't really know about intestinal failure, I guess, before this paper. Um, how in your mind, maybe does it differ from something like short gut syndrome? Like, or are they kind of like one and the same? Like, how, how are those two things different? And yeah, maybe just talk about it. Yeah, but, but basically, it's the same. It's a, a similar pathophysiology. Uh, so when you have um, bariatric surgery is quite new in the history of medicine and so that's why it's uh, increasingly uh, recognized and you know then in, in short gut syndrome you have malabsorption because you have a short gut. Uh, in bariatric surgery, especially uh, in bypass uh, interventions, you can have and you can uh, simulate uh, a short gut syndrome if you have uh, a short common limb, uh, a short common limb, you know that um, one of the effects uh, of um, bypass procedures is to uh, bypass, 
obviously. Uh, <laughs> and, and so um, the food ingested, uh, we, um, the food ingested is digested and uh, is mixed with the digestive secretions and uh, ready to be absorbed only in the, the part of the small bowel, which is common. Okay, and so if this uh, part, this uh, what we call the common limb, is very short, uh, uh, and it, it can be short uh, above, um, below two, two meters, for example, uh, you can have features of uh, uh, similar to short bowel syndrome, short gut syndrome. Yeah. And so that's where you can have severe malabsorption complications. And what's specific? in bariatric surgery in compared to a short bowel syndrome is that you have other factors that could enhance the, the malabsorption, uh, worsen the malabsorption. That's, for example, the, the SIBO on the, on the biliopancreatic limb. It's an excluded limb. And in this limb, you, you can have bacterial overgrowth uh, bacterial overgrowth that that can spread to other parts of the bowel and can induce atrophy. That's how it can worsen. It can it can uh, um, induce atrophy, but it can induce as well uh, enteritis with um, with inflammation that um, that um, triggers catabolism and that that is a, a way uh, that's that is a cause of um, of uh, losing energy as well. And so usually you have different uh, factors. You have a short common uh, limb, you have SIBO uh, with, uh, with catabolism and with uh, enteritis and atrophy. Sometimes you have, you, you have to keep in mind that you can have a, um, a surgical complications, uh, which uh, impairs the food ingestion as well. So usually it's a, it's a multifactorial thing. I mean, you guys mentioned really like five common um, bariatric surgery surgery options in this paper. Um, mm -hmm. Do you really get something like, um, you know, intestinal failure with something like sleeve gastrectomy or gastric banding? Was just really primarily a complication that only can happen with like, you know, ruin Y or, you know, the biliopancreatic diversion with duodenal switch and, and those sort of options, it, I would presume? Yeah, usually when you are, there are a lot of uh, different procedures. Uh, some were uh, fashionable a few years, uh, some years ago, and now uh, new, new, um, new procedures are are coming. And I think it's a, a very dynamic topic, and so uh, things are are, are moving, and uh, <laughs> procedures are. Um, constantly improved to improve the, the outcomes and to improve the, the surgical complications. And basically, you have two, two kinds of bariatric surgery. Um, you have the restrictive procedures, such as a gastric band and the sleeve gastrectomy. Usually, the, this, these two procedures doesn't, does not lead, uh, do not lead to uh, uh, a lot of change in anatomy and so usually except if patients can't uh, absorb and ingest enough food 
uh, you don't have very uh, severe malnutrition and you don't have short gut sy sy syndrome or uh, intestinal failure with this complication, with these um, procedures. Um, the other kind of um, bariatri bariatric uh, uh, procedure are uh, what we say uh, mixed, restrictive and malabsorptive. But actually, it's the, 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 the process of weight loss after this uh, surgery is, uh, is even, uh, even more complex. But it's, uh, these procedures are bypass. Okay, so it's when you bypass uh, um, a part of the, of the small bowel. And all it, it's, uh, it's kind of a reset of the, uh, of the anatomy of the, of the digestive system. Because all is put uh, um, upside down. <laughs> so uh, first you have um, the weight loss is explained by, by a part of restricti restriction because you have in this procedure, even in bypass, you have a small gastric pouch that is um, uh, made. So that you have a restriction. Patients can't um, eat as much as they uh, used to. Uh, and then the, the change in the anatomy change all the way uh, hormones are secreted. And this leads to a dramatic uh, loss of appetite, uh, which is something that explains the, the importance of weight loss uh, in these surgeries. And then you have a, a small amount of malabsorption or maldigestion, because you have both malabsorption because you have a bypass and maldigestion because all is upside down. You have uh, the biliopancreatic secretions that are not mixed, uh, um, synchronized with the ingest food. So you have a part of maldigestion, I would say, and malabsorption uh, as well. But in the, um, in the most of procedure, when you ha have a, a length of the common limb, which is enough, usually the part uh, of malabsorption in the weight loss is usually only 10, 10 to 15 percent. Most of weight loss is attributable to the restrictive, the restriction of food and the, hormo uh, the hormone change that change the appetite. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so um, I, I feel like I would be remiss if um, we didn't talk about dumping syndrome and if we would talk about, you know, bariatric surgery and, and complications. <laughs> so I guess, um, can you just, you know, talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, how you see these patients present in clinic, you know, if you do see them and then, you know, if you have any particular tips about managing some of these patients with dumping syndrome or... With dumping syndrome? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so uh, dumping, dumping syndrome, you, you have, um, you know, you have two, two types of dumping syndrome. You have the, the early dumping syndrome and you have the late dumping syndrome. Early dumping syndrome is early for uh, two reasons. Uh, early because it's very early after the, the symptoms are very early after uh, food ingestion. So it's within the within the 31st minutes after ingestion, the first hour, I would say. And it's um, actually 
these symptoms are uh, like malaise, uh, you have gastrointestinal and vasomotor symptoms, uh, and with fatigue, but usually not hypoglycemia, because sometimes the first uh, thing you, you you look for after uh, these kind of symptoms, malaise, things like that, uh, is the glycemia, but the glycemia is normal. And it's it's early as well because usually it occurs uh, within the first year after bariatric surgery. Okay, it's when the the body and the the food ingestion uh, uh, is adapted, and so uh, your body uh, is not used to um, to have uh, accelerated um, gastric emptying, and so. Uh, you have a lot of physiological changes that makes that you have um, vasomotor and gastrointestinal symptoms early after food ingestion. And usually with the uh, adapted diet, these symptoms improve. Patients um, learn how to avoid this kind of uh, symptoms and so it's a lot improving uh, uh, over time. But the key factor is that you don't have true hypoglycemia in early dumping syndrome. The late dumping syndrome, it's symptoms after uh, postprandial uh, symptoms and usually uh, delayed after one hour or two. And this is linked to an hyperinsulinemia after, uh, after meal and after absorption to uh, uh, simple sugars. And uh, this Peak uh, uh, this peak in uh, insulin makes true um, yeah, true hypoglycemia, and which and uh, with um, more or less severe symptoms. But sometimes you can have very severe symptoms that goes uh, all the way to coma. So that can be very uh, impairing symptoms and very severe symptoms. And usually that is something uh, that occurs. Uh, late after bariatric surgery, usually after one or two hour, uh, uh, one or two uh, years after yeah, bariatric yeah. surgery. So, so it's a new thing. It's very two different uh, uh, syndromes, and usually the first step of treatment for both both of them are uh, diet, adapted diet. Um, they, we 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 say to we tell patients they have to uh, take time to eat small amount uh, of food, avoid simple sugars. Uh, and usually if you uh, if this uh, does not lead to improved uh, symptomatology, uh, usually re you refer to a specialized team, uh, especially in late dumping syndrome where you can have uh, more severe consequences of hypoglycemia. And you have specific. Uh, you have then in for, for the late dumping syndrome. You have specific medications that can, that can lower the, the peak in insulin. Insulin, and uh, and but usually it's uh, it's something uh, that he, that is dealt with in a specialized center. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, uh, so I guess I'll, I'll resolve the case and then, uh, maybe we'll just talk about some, you know, last conclusion points. So, uh, you know, Miss Barry, you know, comes back to you two years, 
post-surgery, you know, at that last visit, apparently she was, it was poor compliance with her diet. That was the main issue. So um, nothing major. She said in total, she's lost about 90 pounds. Um, and uh, she's very happy with that. Actually has no complaints. Um, and I guess I'm just curious, you know, in these, in these patients, I think, you know, more so than often, you know, they're, they're doing okay. Are there any, I don't know, specific recommendations uh, so far as like, you know, in their diet or like particular supplementation that you will um, sort of encourage them to engage in? Or how do you, how do you um, counsel these patients when they're doing okay? Yeah, so with a patient who, who, who do well, um, I think in the diet, if she, if she does well, if, uh, because she has the right diet, <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't have symptoms and she, she has lost weight, she, she, she doesn't lose weight uh, more, uh, she has a good diet, you, you should uh, advise uh, a healthy diet, uh, like in general population. So, um, uh, avoid uh, avoid junk food, the, the, the standard thing. Uh, but then, even with a healthy diet, these patients, because of the change in anatomy, especially in bypa after bypass procedures, uh, should uh, continue to take uh, supplementation in vitamins and uh, oligo elements. So they should take tabs of uh, multivitamins and uh, daily multi multivitamins to avoid uh, to avoid um, the, to avoid the defi deficiencies. So this, this is a key thing, and the the, only, the other thing I would advise her is to keep at least one annual consultation with the gastroenterologist or the nutritionist, but uh, not to be lost to follow up uh, for for these reasons, and to have an annual screening. Um, at, of the most common um, uh, nutritional deficiencies. So the, you, you check for anemia, iron, uh, vitamin uh, folate, vitamin B, B12, and um, so the most common. And then in case of symptoms, you check for rarer um, deficiencies. That was yeah. going to be one of my questions. So. Um, how how frequently would you check those lab sounds like maybe once they are past the weight loss phase and into more of a maintenance phase and they're they're not showing alarm symptoms they're just having an annual check maybe check annually in that weight loss phase do you check every three months every month how how often would you screen outside of alarm symptoms these patients for nutritional deficiencies in in the weight loss uh, phase uh, it's three, three to six months, but it depends on the, 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 how the patient is and how and it depends as well as the pre-existent deficiencies the patients had. So, uh, usually they have, uh, uh, every three months or six months, at least, uh, uh, blood cells counts and, uh, uh, this thing, but you, you should check for iron and sometimes be, uh, thiamine. Uh, in case uh, in case of symptoms, it's a phase where usually the patients have some symptoms, uh, GI symptoms, because we are still adapting to their new anatomy and mm -hmm. to to their new diet. So, um, uh, but after when the weight loss is st stabilized, um, 
an annual screening is usually sufficient, uh, annual or biannual, but uh, annual when the patient is uh, very good, annual consultation and annual screening of the most common uh, deficiencies. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I guess we're wrapping up here. The one thing um, I think that maybe is shared amongst the most gastroenterologists is that, um, you know, we all typically do endoscopy. Um, so, and I, I guess I'm curious, I mean, sometimes these patients are, you know, you run into some interesting, you know, endoscopic issues with these, pro with these patients, you know, going down multiple limbs, trying to figure out, you know, which one you're in. Um, so I'm curious, do you, you know, do you have any, you know, particular tips about, you know, scoping these patients or, you know, any, any tips or tricks that you have for us? Um, not, not that specific. But <laughs> I, I, I would, I, I would say keep, uh, uh, check for the anatomy and check for uh, what procedure has the patient before scoping them. So, mm -hmm. uh, don't discover the anatomy and, <laughs> and think about it once you are in the stomach and the back. Yeah. So mm -hmm. try to to check this before um, and see a, see a picture of the <laughs> the anatomy before. Right. And then uh, usually in the Roux and Y bypass, you you have only one anastomosis, so you have only uh, one way to go. Um, check for ulcers because it's often on the anastomosis you have ulcers and then um, keep in mind that uh, a large part the larger part of the stomach in bypass procedures uh, are not available to to check keep in mind there's another part of the stomach you can't scope uh, and uh, where you can have uh, uh, other complications as well you can have cancer on the other part of the of the stomach and you can't uh, see it as well for um, ERCP, uh, keep in mind that you can't uh, access, uh, you usually can't access to the, to the biliary uh, mm -hmm. uh, canal uh, with common ERCP. But for mm -hmm. common um, gastroscopy, I would say check the, <laughs> check check the, the, the patients anatomy before. <laughs> right. Very good. And the only other thing, I guess we've mentioned, you know, this, uh, you know, these ulcers, these marginal ulcers that a lot of times we'll find at the anastomotic site. Um, you know, I think in a lot of places, I guess in the U.S., we've, you know, whenever you see them, we've kind of adopted this idea of, you know, open capsule PPI that, um, you know, preferentially I think can, can hit the ulcer. Um, are there any other, you know, have you had any like particularly difficult ulcers to deal with that you've had to, you know, try other, you know, options or you've had to like do other things for these patients? I don't know. I'm curious, like, do you, do you ever get stuck or what do you do when you do get stuck with these um, ulcers that won't heal? So that that's a good question because uh, sometimes uh, the the ulcer are, are are frequent and sometimes the the ulcers can be refractory to to treatment because of this because you have a malabsorption of the PPIs um, so that's why uh, usually after these procedures patients are advised to take lifelong PPI medication to avoid the frequent. Um, um, marginal ulcer, which is um, also of the anastomosis. And um, they are advised uh, to avoid uh, avoid NSAIDs for life, 
okay, because it's a, it's a key risk factor for uh, these kind of ulcers. And then uh, I would say you, if you have, if patients have an ulcer despite taking their PPI, yes, that is a, um, a situation where you can improve absorption to, of the PPI by opening the capsules, okay? But you're not for, for, for prevention, I, I would not say it's mandatory you open the capsules. If, if the PPIs are well absorbed this way, it's okay. But in case of refractory ulcer, you can open the capsules or, or even uh, put them on the IV medication of PPI uh, for the most difficult case. You can give also, also I don't know um, uh, the, the specialty in US, but like uh, uh, sucral fat or mm -hmm. topical, topical, um, so we topical medications. You can use these uh, these medications as well uh, to help the PPIs make effect. Don't forget to to perform biopsies in case of refractory ulcer. And uh, there are some, and keep in mind as well that some, especially uh, early uh, ulcer complication can be, uh, can reveal a fistula. So if you have a, um, a complex presentation with a strong uh, abdominal pain, a refractory ulcer, uh, keep in mind it can be a fistula or a, a complicated ulcer with an abscess. Uh, and so uh, perform a, a CT scan, a CT scan. Awesome, awesome, yeah. Just um, one quick follow-up question. On no, that. go ahead, yeah. Is there ever um, a role for surgical management of these medically refractory marginal ulcers where you, you keep scoping it, you've done scans, there's no abscess, there's no fistula, they're just not healing and they're causing the patient either a lot of pain or you're slowly starting to see maybe the anastomosis narrow or perhaps some anemia from intermittent bleeding. Do you ever have to refer them back to the surgeon and say, is there anything we can do with this? If the, if the symptoms are refractory and it leads to uh, impaired ingested food and complications uh, such as, um, uh, such as uh, severe protein uh, malnutrition or, or this thing, it can be uh, a reason to uh, uh, consider revision of the, of, the, of the surgery or it can be a, a surgical case. But usually we, we manage these patients medically or even with a course of IV PPI mm. uh, to break the cycle. Very well, thank you. Awesome, awesome. Uh, well, I think this has been a really awesome discussion uh, on the, the paper. Um, it really is, I think for our listeners, like, you know, if you have any questions about nutrient complications, uh, especially the ones that occur in bariatric surgery, it's an excellent resource. Um, so I know, Dr. Nuzo, that you're always, um, I don't know, doing some new research project. Uh, are you, is there something right now that's in the works with like, you know, mesenteric ischemia or, you know, what, what's, what's happening, I guess, in, in, in research for you right now? So for, for me, it's not, uh, it's not only about bariatric surgery, as I, as I told you in the first place. Um, we had a lot of research on uh, intestinal failure uh, in general. And my, 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 main, my main topic, my major topic uh, I'm into is mesenteric ischemia. 
and and so uh, that's my my major research I do. Uh, we have we have uh, opened in France um, in 2016 the first uh, intestinal stroke st center. So it's uh, an intensive care unit with uh, eight beds of intensive care medicine dedicated to uh, mesenteric ischemia patients. And so we receive patients. We have a 24-7 a uh, 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 call, uh, telephone, and um, we receive calls over all France and Paris region. And we, and 24-7 hours, we receive patients. We, we revascularize the patients. We, we care for them and we avoid in the, in most of them, we avoid digestive surgery and, and death. And so that's a, a very exciting new uh, topic of the gastroenterology. And uh, we, I, I, can, I can talk about it for, for hours. And um, that's my main uh, subject, my main topic. And, um, and that's a, a passionate uh, one. I, I would say when, I, when we were talking at, at the start of the of the discussion about my motivations and the, the, the advice I would uh, give to young trainees, it would be choose, if you want to choose a, a subspecialty, stay curious about all general gastroenterology because for most of us, the first uh, one of the main reasons we chose gastroenterology is because of uh, its uh, diversity. So stay curious about other parts of gastroenterology because uh, because you don't know uh, what makes tomorrow and some and that's an exciting thing in our specialty is that in 10 years 20 years uh, in your during your career if you want to subspecialize in another part of the gastroenterology you can and uh, because things are moving changing and uh, um, and uh, I, would, I would give the advice that choose your specialty based on your proper interest, in your interest and not the interest of your boss or not the interest of your position in gastroenterology because that's, that's how you, you, you give the most of you uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's how you, you, you reach your goals and that's how the, 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 the job is interesting and fascinating great advice thank you for sharing that that's excellent yeah yeah that's perfect so i i feel like that's a that's a pretty good place a pretty good stopping place there so um uh dr news i just want to say thank you you know it was a it was a journey for us getting you on here but i'm, I'm really glad that we were able to because this is a, a really awesome discussion we really appreciate your time Hang on to your hats, y'all. Messing is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recorded conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare 
healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast and specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.